look up and see the stars. You could actually uh, see something up there. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Uh, If you're new to the New Testament, uh, there is the larger book of Romans, and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then the book of Galatians. There's just six chapters in this book, but it's it's a wonderful little letter. This is the book that inflamed the heart of Martin Luther and uh, was the source of the, at least the German phase of the Protestant Reformation. Luther loved this book. I have his commentary on Galatians, and you can tell that, uh, that he really did, uh, uh, really did appreciate what the Apostle Paul had to say. He says at one point, I am wedded to Galatians as I am to Katie. Katie was his wife. And uh, he appreciated this book so much because he, at one time, was an uptight uh, monk trying to find God, trying to be good, trying very hard to be good, and discovering that he couldn't do it. And then he read the book of Galatians. Interestingly enough, he had never read the book of Galatians through all of his theological training. They studied Aquinas back then and not the Bible. And uh, he had no concept of the grace of God, and this new idea dawned on him, and he began to realize that he didn't have to be good, that God didn't expect him to clean up his act and try to do better, that God wanted to do that for him. And that was the beginning of the, uh, of the Protestant uh, Reformation, that Reformation first that took place in the heart of, of Martin Luther. Someone has said that this book is the charter of Christian liberty, and uh, freedom certainly is the theme of the book. Any commentator you read will say uh, freedom is the, is the main idea. Uh, that word has come to mean a lot of things to uh, different people. To uh, Bobby McGee, it was nothing left to lose. And uh, to others of you, it may mean something entirely different. But uh, the way Paul uses the term is with reference to our freedom to become what God intends us to be. Uh, we, no one is born free. I hope you understand that. You come into the world uh, dependent upon your parents, and then as you grow, you develop a whole host of dependencies, uh, peer approval. And we begin to depend upon material things to give us a sense of worth and value and tell us who we are. Uh, what kind of education we receive. We look to money and power and prestige and achievements academically or athletically to, to identify ourselves. And uh, it doesn't work real well. As we get older, we may turn to alcohol, and drugs, and food addictions, and sexual addictions, and various other things. And we find that our whole life is controlled, our destiny is determined, that we don't have any freedom at all. We're tied up in knots. And inside there is someone telling us the kind of person we ought to be, but we, we can't pull it off. We don't, we don't measure up. Well, this is a book that tells us how. This book also uh, inflamed the heart of another man. His name is Brennan Manning. I've mentioned him before, uh, ex-Catholic priest. heard him speak in San Francisco a number of years ago, and I was really taken by his note of 
of grace. And I want to read something that he uh, said recently in a magazine interview. I have a good little friend, a 55-year-old nun named Mary Michael O'Shaughnessy, who has a doctorate in theology. She has a banner on her wall that says, Today I will not should on myself. One of the wonderful results of my consciousness of God's grace and his staggering love for me as I am is a freedom not to be who I should be or who others want me to be. I can be who I really am. And who I am is a bundle of paradoxes and contradictions. I believe and I doubt. I trust and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty if I don't feel guilty. Aristotle said we're rational animals. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. It's the real me, as I am, that God now loves. I don't have to be anyone else. For, for 20 years, I tried to be Brother Teresa. <laughs> I tried to be Francis of Assisi. I tried to be a carbon copy of some great saint rather than the original God intended me to be. You know, for me, one of the most colorful and helpful metaphors in, in all of Scripture is this notion in the book of Revelation that we have a name that only God knows that he gives us a name. A kind of nickname. A term of endearment that he has for us. It signifies everything that God intends us to be. And we are growing into the likeness of that name. And it's all of God. See, that's the whole point. It's all of God. It doesn't depend upon us. We don't have to have more spit and polish to be acceptable. God accepts us just as we are. Our salvation is dependent upon him. Our sanctification, that theological word that simply means growing in, in the likeness to Christ, is all of God. Our part is simply to cooperate with what God is doing. He changes us from one degree of likeness to the next. What a freeing thing that is. We don't have to hide we don't have to wear masks. You see, that's, that's the bane of the evangelical church, is that we hide behind some uh, level of performance that we think everyone ex expects us to have. And we try to pretend, and we can't open up, and we can't admit that uh, we're struggling and hurting and having a hard time because we think it all depends on us. But it doesn't. It all depends upon God. And this book is the book Paul wrote to set us free. Now let's, uh, let's dive in. Let me read the salutation. What Paul does in the first uh, verses of this chapter is hang the uh, key to the, to the door on the outside. Uh, we, used to, we don't do this anymore. If you happen to be a second story man, ignore this. because We used to hide the key under a rock in the front yard so uh, our son could get in the house if we were away. But we don't do that anymore. It's not safe. But what Paul does is that he, he leaves the key right in the lock so that we can open the door immediately. gives us a little precy, a little summary of the book in these uh, opening verses. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle. That's not a title, it's an assertion. <laughs> He's going to develop that idea throughout the, the, the next two chapters. He insists upon the fact that he's an apostle. That doesn't sound like the apostle Paul. Humble man. He describes himself as the least of the saints, the worst of all the sinners. And here he's 
very, uh, very blunt and bold about uh, affirming his apostleship. I'm an apostle, he says, sent not from men nor by God. That is, uh, the source of my apostleship is not from any man. No one commissioned me. No man sent me. I should say no one. No man commissioned me. Uh, nor was it by man. The word has the idea of mediation through man. It didn't come through uh, a group of men recognizing that God had called me to be an apostle and then laying hands on me to uh, in acknowledgement of that act. It's an unmediated commission. It didn't come from any man. It didn't come through any collection of men. But it came through Jesus Christ. He's the mediator and from God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is going to belabor the fact that he's an apostle in the opening chapters of this book. And the reason is because his apostleship was uh, under attack. He was being maligned. There was a smear campaign going on. People were saying, Paul's not an apostle. He's not one of the regulars. He's a Johnny-come-lately. Uh, we have the other, the other apostles. Uh, there's uh, Peter, and there's Matthew, and there's Bartholomew. And we know these men were apostles. They were commissioned by, by Christ himself during the years uh, that he was here with us. But this fellow Paul, he's, he, he's not one of the regulars. Uh, he, he doesn't have the authority that they have. So Paul is going to insist strenuously that he is an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? Well, our Lord, uh, or Mark, rather, defines for us uh, in Mark 3 what an apostle is. Mark 3.14, he says that the apostles are those whom Jesus called to himself and then sent out with his authority. Now, we, we know this word apostle was used uh, in the Jewish world. It was used in the Greek world. Uh, it had basically the same meaning wherever it was found. It was, it's used in Greek classical literature, for example, of commissioning a ship. When a ship was sent out, it was sent out as an apostle. Incidentally, our word apostle is just an anglicized form of the, of, the, of the Greek word for apostle. We made an English word out of the Greek word. The Greek word means sent out. Stello, sent, apo, away from, sent out. So they made apostles out of ships. They sent them out, commissioned them with all the authority of the Roman Empire. The Jews used this term of those that were commissioned by rabbis and sent out with their authority to teach in their name. There's been a lot of work done on this uh, term by, by uh, scholars, Greek scholars. And they've discovered that the counterpart of this, uh, this uh, Greek word in Aramaic, which was the language that the Jews used at that time, is the word shalia. Uh, same idea, someone sent forth. And they know what the shalia, shalia were. They were people who were commissioned by a rabbi and sent out with the authority of that rabbi. When they spoke they were saying essentially what the rabbi said. So Jesus wasn't using a special term. He's using a term that was used all over the, the, uh, the world at that time. And people knew who these apostles were. They were a unique, select, small group of men. Twelve, originally. There are a few others. James and Andronicus and Junius and others that are, that are called apostles. They were called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were taught by him, discipled by him, and then they were sent out with his authority. And they knew they had authority. And Paul said, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I'm not a Johnny-come-lately. 
because the Lord was commissioned on the same basis as the other apostles. He was on his way up to Damascus, as you know, bearing letters with which he had the authority, from which he had the authority to persecute Christians. And he was arrested in his travels by the risen Lord. And the Lord commissioned him to be his apostle to the Gentiles and gave him all the authority that he himself had. So that when Paul spoke, and when he wrote, he spoke with the same authority, and he wrote with the same authority as our Lord Jesus. That's why Paul could write to the church in Thessalonica, and he could say, when you, uh, when you received my words, when you heard me preach, you received them, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. Very audacious claim. But you see, Paul fully understood his authority. And it was very, very important for him to establish it in the eyes of these uh, folks in, uh, in Galatia. He will belabor the point in the first uh, two chapters of, of Galatians. He will say, for example, I didn't learn anything from the apostles. I didn't, learn, I didn't get my doctrine from them. I didn't even get the historical facts of Jesus' life. I got it straight from Jesus. And all the apostles could do when we convened a meeting was say, Paul, you got it straight. I don't know where you got it, you know, you, but you, under, you, know, you know what Jesus taught. And they simply endorsed his uh, ministry. And in fact, on one occasion, as he will point out, he rebuked none other than the, the apostle Peter, who was the leading apostle of the apostolic band. So it's very important for Paul to establish his authority, and we'll see why in a moment. Uh, now, he writes to um, the churches in Galatia. Paul, an apostle to the churches in Galatia. And our question is, uh, who or what are the Galatians? Is that a city? Uh, is that a region? What is that? Well, those are, those are relatives of most of us. Uh, they're Gauls. Um, the Gauls originally settled in, uh, uh, in France, northwest corner of France. Uh, when I was in high school, we were required back then to have three years of Latin for some odd reason. And uh, I still remember our senior, our third year, trying to read Caesar's Gallic Wars. Uh, it begins, uh, all Gaul is divided into three parts. Uh, personally, I thought Caesar had a lot of Gaul enough to be divided into three parts uh, to write that hard Latin. But uh, he wasn't talking uh, about that sort of Gaul. He was talking about a region just across the Alps, across the Pyrenees from, uh, from Italy. It's where the Gauls originally settled. They were very adventurous people. They traveled all over the world. Tough people. They were the first people to wear chain mail. They were literate, uh, fairly sophisticated people. Folks like Livy, the Roman historian, and, and uh, uh, what's the name of the fellow that wrote the Aeneid? Uh, Virgil. He was, he was a Galatian. He was a Gaul. They, they migrated west into Great Britain, into the British Isles. Uh, they became the Celts, the Welsh people, the Cornish people, the Scots, the Irish. That's why I say they're our relatives. They were the people that uh, settled in in Great Britain. Brittany first, and then went across the channel to Great Britain. They also migrated uh, east into what is modern-day Turkey. And they settled first in the northern part of that area up next to the Black Sea. That's where the Romans found them when they began to expand uh, the Roman Empire. And they had a tough time with these Galatians. They, it took them years before they could subdue them. 
finally, about 25 years before, after Christ was born, they were able to put them, put them in their place and bring them into, in, into the Roman Empire completely. They, they settled a little bit farther to the south. And that whole area from, uh, from the Black Sea almost down to the Mediterranean was a Roman province that was called Galatia. Now, there's this raging controversy among the scholars over whether Paul wrote to churches in North Galatia or South Galatia. I mean, they write tomes on this subject. And for me, it engenders all the enthusiasm that I've been able to uh, develop over Bud Bowl 3. I I just, to me, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything. But it keeps scholars busy. For myself, I think that this book was written to the people in South Galatia. It was written to the people that uh, Paul visited uh, in that area, in the cities of Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Now, the reason those names sound familiar to you is that if you read the book of Acts lately, those are the cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. And uh, what little bit of reading and thinking I've done has led me to believe it's, it's to those churches that the book of Galatians was written. Now, I, I want to give you an assignment. Read Acts 13 and 14 this week. It's easy to remember this is January the 13th, so read chapter 13 this week and chapter 14. And I'll give you some background of the book. Paul went into uh, Antioch first, Pisidian Antioch, not, not the other Antioch that where Paul lived, but the one in, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor then, and he began to preach, and uh, his lengthy sermon in the synagogue is given there. You know, he'd show up in the synagogue, he'd have his rabbinic robes on, you know, with his hash marks and all, his Ph.D. shawl, and, and uh, they'd get him up front, have him say a few words, and he commenced to preach, and they didn't like, some of them didn't like what he had to say, and they created uh, some unrest, and uh, Paul had, had to leave the synagogue, and he went to the Gentiles, and he quoted that passage that we read last week in Isaiah 49. The gospel is also the light to the Gentiles. And he began to preach to them. That was God's ultimate intention. And uh, many people believed. Uh, and, uh, but the unrest uh, developed to the point where he had to leave Antioch. He went up to Iconium. Same thing happened there. He went up to Lystra. And uh, uh, there was a man who had been lame all of his life. Paul, uh, Paul healed him. Just like that. And the people said, the gods have come down to us. And they named Barnabas Zeus, because he was a big fella. And uh, Paul must have been a little bit of a guy. They named him Hermes. He's, that's the fella you see on the flower ads, you know, that has the wings on his, on his feet, the messenger of the gods. I don't know, maybe they saw Paul jogging through the streets of uh, Lystra one day. And, but I, I don't know why they named him Hermes. Perhaps because he was the spokesman and... And Barnabas was obvious, obviously the leader of this expedition. They called him gods, but a day or two later they tried to kill Paul. It shows how fickle people can be. They stoned him, almost uh, dragged him off to the garbage dump, left him there. Got up, went back into the city, went the next day to Derby, preached there. Went back to Lystra where he'd been stoned and preached because his heart was really with those people. He needed to leave a confirming message behind. And then he retraced his his, his first missionary journey went back home to Antioch. All that's in Acts 13 and 14. You'll need to read that this week to know what these people were like to whom this book is, is addressed. So those are the Galatians. Now, um, Paul's salutation includes uh, this normal 
a word about grace and peace, verse 3, he very often uh, uses those two words in introductions. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. I told you that these first verses are a summary of the book. The book contains two elements. Paul defends his apostleship in chapters 1 and 2, and he argues for grace in chapters 3 through 6. And here he picks up, at the very beginning, this this idea of grace. As John Stott puts it, grace is for the worthless, peace is for the restless. Grace is the source, peace is the result. This is the theme, one of the themes and the keynote of the book. This idea of a gracious, loving, giving God. Now grace gets defined a number of different ways. Some would define it in terms of the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's helpful. At other times, it's simply described as unmerited favor, God giving even though we don't deserve it. But uh, I like what um, Anna, Hannah Whitehall Smith says, to say that it is free, unmerited favor only expresses a little of its meaning. It is the unhindered, wondrous, boundless love of God poured out to us in an infinite variety of ways without stint or measure, not according to our deserving, but according to his measureless heart of love. That's what grace is. We have a God who just wants to give. Some of you have a very distorted concept of God. He's like a cranky old uncle, and you have to tippy-toe around him, and you have to be very, very quiet, and that's that's why there's so many rules, because you don't want to get him upset. He's too cranky, and he won't like you unless you're good. And Paul wants you to know that he likes you whether you're good or you're bad. He loves you just the way you are. That's God's grace. And it's epitomized, his grace is epitomized in this statement. He gave himself to deliver us. He gave himself. I read a story last week of a man who discovered that he had, had contracted cancer. It's quite serious. He underwent chemotherapy and all his hair fell out. And he was really distressed. I don't know why that should distress anybody. <laughs> uh, Carolyn tells me bald is beautiful. I, I've always believed that. Anyway, I have it on good authority that, that people in heaven will not have hair. Bible says there will be no parting there. (laughs) But anyway, this fellow was uh, really anxious and upset. He didn't want anybody to see him. And uh, next day his family showed up and they'd all shaved their heads. Every one of them. And I thought, how gracious. That's the way our Lord is. That's what the incarnation, our incarnation means our Lord shaved his head. He was willing to come down to our level, humiliate himself so he could let us know that he really cares. 
cares about us more than, than we could ever imagine. Loves us just the way we are in our fallen, miserable state. But he didn't leave us there. He came to deliver us from this evil age. Doesn't Paul doesn't use the word for world, cosmos. He uses another word that means age, world system, way of thinking. Delivers us from the influence. That's the idea of this world. In uh, Paul's thought, in fact, in all of biblical thought, there are just two ages. There's the age to come, which is under the control of our, of our Lord. That's when there won't be any child molestation, there won't be any war, spouses won't leave each other, there won't be any cancer, there won't be any pain or heartache or heartbreak. That's coming up. In the meantime, we're living in the, this present evil age. It's under the control of the evil one. As John puts it, he's got the world in his pocket. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. That's why so much of what the world says is just an echo of, of, of what's said in hell. I mean, it's just the philosophy of of the evil one. And uh, it influences us from the from cradle to grave. Pray, he preys upon us, tries to convince us that, that what he has to say is true in contrast to what, what God has to say. And what Paul tells us is that God, through Jesus Christ, has delivered us, rescued us from the influence, the control of this present evil age. That word rescue is interesting, uh, at least it was to me. This is the only place in the New Testament where, where this word is used metaphorically. Every other place it's used literally. Of Peter being rescued from, uh, from prison and from Herod and uh, Israel being rescued from Egypt and Paul being rescued from a lynch mob. And uh, here it's our spiritual rescue being delivered from the control and the domination of this... Uh, of this age. That's what it means to be to be set free. And it strikes me that that is the one thing that you and I cannot do for ourselves. We can make money and we can make a name for ourselves and we can make a big mess out of our lives. But we cannot deliver ourselves from this evil age. Some of you may have seen the article last week about this dear young man that uh, shot up the town here a week or so ago and accidentally uh, sh- shot a man that was in a trailer. And I was really touched by that article because he said, he was interviewed by a statesman reporter, and he said, I'm not a bad person, I just did a bad thing. And I thought, how many of us can identify? You know, theologically, we're all bad people, we know that. But still, there's this... There's this yearning in our hearts for goodness. We really want to do what's right. We all do. The worst of us wants to do what's right. But the question is, how do you do it? How do you do it? And even though we have these good intentions, we always end up doing bad things. Who will deliver us? Well, it's our Lord Jesus. He gave himself. He gave himself in order to rescue us from this evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, uh, he planned it, he implemented it. He's never failed yet at anything you ever set out to do. To whom be glory forever and ever. That's what Paul always does. He sounds this note of grace and then he's just overwhelmed by it and he offers up praise to God. I have a friend who was teaching a Bible study once in a university on the, on the West Coast and 
uh, he was an evangelistic Bible study. He had a number of non-Christians in a fraternity house, and there was a young woman there, a young Chinese woman, who had had almost no contact with Christianity before. She was from another religion. She was following another path just as hard as she could, trying to be good, and she couldn't do it. And uh, my friend was teaching through the book of Romans, and they came to that part of Romans where Paul declares the grace of God and the freedom that we have in Christ, that he's the the innocent Adam, to use the word that uh, was used here this morning in, in the song, the one who, who who came and undid what Adam, what the guilty Adam had had done, and uh, and set set us free, so we don't have to try to please God any longer. And she was so overwhelmed, she didn't know what to do, and she didn't have any religious background like us. She didn't know all the holy words like Hallelujah and Praise the Lord and Amen. She just jumped up and said, "Whoopee, whoopee!" She said. And uh, this is what Paul does at this point. He is overcome with excitement. It all depends on God, he says. It doesn't depend on me any longer. Whoopee, he says. To him be the glory forever. Now, you'll notice, how much time do I have? Not much. Let's hurry on. You'll notice that Paul does something in Galatians that he does not do in any other book. In every other book, there's some... uh, uh, some affirmation, some word of commendation, some some expression of endearment and love for these people. He doesn't do that. He just dives right in. You can tell he's angry. He's upset. He begins Galatians like Beethoven begins the, his fifth symphony. You know, da 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 da. I mean, he's off and running from the very beginning. Hits the ground running. I'm astonished. He says that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel, which is not a gospel at all. You notice he does not say, you're deserting me, you're deserting God. When you fall from grace, that's a term that Paul will use in this book. He does not mean lose one's salvation. He means fall from the principle of grace. When you fall away from grace, you fall away from God. And you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Actually, Paul uses two Greek words for different here, and some of your translations reflect that fact. A different gospel that is not different. The first word means uh, uh, different, uh, a different kind of gospel. The word means, I mean, a diff- uh, pardon me, a similar, uh, one of the, uh, a different gospel. The other means uh, a second or one that is uh that is not different at all. What Paul is saying is that there really is only one gospel. There is no different gospel. There's no second gospel. There's only one, and it's the one which the apostles have preached. It's really no gospel at all. If you turn away from grace, it's not good news, it's bad news. People are throwing you into confusion. They're disquieting you. That's what happens when you mix grace and, and law. And uh, they're trying to pervert or twist the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to, go- to, to you, let him be damned. That's literally the word that he uses. The NIV uh, softens it a bit, eternally condemned. But Paul uses the stronger word. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you received, let him be damned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, 
I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, our question is, what, what is it that was happening in Galatia to bring forth this strong rebuke? We said, it doesn't sound very Christian. That's not the spirit of Christ to say to someone that would want them to be damned. What, what's going on here? Well, let me tell you what was happening. Paul would go to cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and he would preach the gospel. He would stand before those people, and he would read some of those great liberating passages out of the Old Testament that that prefigure the coming of of Christ, and he would preach freedom that they had in Christ. You don't have to keep the law anymore, he's saying. Uh, You're free to serve Christ. The law, he says, as he'll tell us in Galatians, is just a tutor teaches us our inadequacy, directs us toward Christ so that we can be free in Christ. And and people were believing it. These were Gentiles, too, who had no contact or very little contact with Judaism. They weren't circumcised people. They weren't accustomed to the culture and and, uh, the procedures of the Jews. And uh, they were hearing the, the good news for the first time, and they were responding to it, and and hundreds of them. Thousands of them probably were turning to Christ from idols to serve the living and true God. And uh, as soon as Paul would leave town, some uh, people would show up. And they too would have their rabbinic robes on. And they had more hash marks than, than, than Paul and more degrees than he. And they would say, well, this, this fellow Paul, you know, he's... he's uh, He's not one of the regulars. He's not one of the twelve apostles. And uh, it's all right to believe in Christ. You believe in Christ. That's okay. That's good. We believe, too, that Jesus is the Messiah. But unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. We know that's what they were saying because their theology is spelled out in in summary form in in Acts 15.1. They were saying to these people that had been set free, delivered from this present age, they were saying, you've got to keep the rules. It's not enough just to have Christ. You have to keep the rules. That's legalism, pure and simple. That's adding to the simplicity of, of what uh, C.S. Lewis described as mere Christianity, the basic fundamental facts of Christianity. And it has been the bane of the church from the very beginning. Let me read something to you. A young man came to his spiritual leader. He's eager to forsake all and follow Christ. What, he says, should I do? His teacher says, get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and stop eating white bread. You cannot take warm baths or shave off your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us because it is an attempt to improve upon his work. You know what that comes from? From a second century catechism. That's law. It's legal. We chuckle today, but you know, I wonder sometimes, what will people in the 22nd century chuckle at that we've laid on on people. What kind of laws have we added to grace? And the problem with legalism is that it does not work. Paul will tell uh, 
tell Peter later in this book, look, Peter, it didn't work for us. It didn't work for the Jews. It won't work for the Gentiles. Why are you trying to lay the law on them? But people are still trying to make it work. I had a friend recently who told me he joined a church, some of the cities, some of the place. And uh, he, the next week, the elders showed up and they had a big book. I mean, like, like this, a big buck. They handed it. These are the rules. Memorize the rules, and then we'll let you be a member. And they looked at the rules, and nine-tenths of them had nothing to do with biblical Christianity. They were just rules. A lot of it was culture. A lot of it was tradition. It had nothing to do with, uh, with, biblical, with, with a biblical lifestyle. Uh, Steve Newman used to tell what would was for me one of the funniest stories told about a group of German Lutherans that came to the United States to visit the churches here. And as they went around, they were uh, sorely distressed at the carnality of, of American Christendom because uh, we were so free and casual in our worship. And we laughed out loud in the, in the services. And people didn't wear, men didn't wear coats and ties to the morning service. And and uh, they drove too expensive cars, and they dressed too expensively. And they, these, these men were just so concerned. And they went back to the Netherlands. Uh, excuse me, I said they were German, they were Dutch Lutherans. And they went back to the Netherlands, and they, uh, they gathered uh, the, the, the church leadership together. And they began to share their concern. And they were so concerned that they began to weep. And the tears ran down their cheeks and off the ends of their cigars, and into their beer. <laughs> and uh, you understand what I'm getting at. You know, so much of it is it's just culture. It's just tradition. It has nothing to do with what, what Scripture tells us. It's just, it's just rules and regulations. It's legalism. It's adding to, uh, to the simplicity of the gospel. Oh, Jesus wants you to change, and he will change you. But he changes you on a different basis from the inside out as his grace begins to work. He wants to conform you to his image. But his idea of what you should be is so much greater than just someone who doesn't smoke and drink and chew or go with girls that do or whatever. He has so much more than that in mind uh, for you. I, I, when I occasionally get to, uh, reference forms from Christian institutions and and they want to know if this person does this and that and the other. And none of these things have anything to do with biblical Christianity. And, and I, oh, I've never done it. I, I should do it sometime. But I've always felt like I wanted to add at the bottom. No, I don't think he or she does any of those things. But I, I want to reserve the right for this person to be bigoted and uh, uh, to be materialistic and to be resentful and unforgiving and, and unloving. And so you see, these are the real issues. Of Christ, this is authentic Christianity. This is what it means to be a real believer. And it's this that our Lord is producing uh, in our lives. Now, uh, if you teach this, you're not going to be liked, I can tell you. Uh, that's why Paul says in verse 10, Am I not trying to win the approval? Am I, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? See, let me tell you why. Because, because legalism is so attractive to people, really. Because it depends on us. It's an appeal to my pride. It's also uh, a little more uh, assuring to know what the rules are. 
and to have a book of rules that you can follow. That's what Peter was trying to do when he said to Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times. He wanted to rule. Seven times, and then you bust the guy in the nose on the eighth time. See, Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. No, no limit. See, infinite forgiveness. Uh, but we like the rules. We like the norms. We like the laws. It makes us feel a little more secure. And then secondly, it appeals to our ability to save ourselves, which is our fundamental problem, we think, all along that we have what it takes to bring salvation to ourselves. And it's a wonderful appeal to me when someone says you have to be baptized before you're saved. Well, that's something I can do. I can contribute something uh, to, to Christ's work. See, He didn't do enough, so I can do a little bit more. And uh, I can tell you, if you, if you start talking about grace, people aren't going to like you. Every time I've taught grace in this church, people have left. They don't understand. They say, Roper, you, you're, you're teaching license. People are going to run amok. No, they won't. Not if they understand grace. Because Paul says to Titus, the grace of God teaches us. It's appeared, he says. And it teaches us to, be, to live holy and righteous and godly lives. If you really understand grace, then you'll be everything God intends you to be. Or you'll be moving in that, in that direction. It does not make lawless uh, beings out of us. Uh, let me uh, uh, let me wrap this thing up as as quickly as I can. Uh, the, the apostle's reaction here is very stern. I'm sure you picked that up. He denounces those who would add law to grace simply because it's uh, such a serious thing. Uh, he notice the two ifs: one in verse eight and one in verse nine. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel. Other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And then again in verse 9, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is teaching you a gospel, other than that, uh, what you accepted, let him be eternally condam- uh, condemned. Let him be damned. And uh, in, in, in the English language, we only have one if uh, we use in uh, conditional clauses. The Greeks had a whole bunch of them. The first if in verse 8 suggests a high degree of improbability. The second if suggests a high degree of probability. Let's read it that way. If we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be damned. Highly improbable that any of the apostles would ever change their tune because they were taught of the Lord Jesus. Highly improbable that an angel from heaven would ever preach another gospel. However, an angel of hell might preach another gospel. And he may look, or she, I don't know, angels are sexless, it, uh, may look more like an angel of light than you ever thought possible. So if tomorrow morning you're awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning and there's this big angel standing at the foot of your bed, you know, with all six wings furled and the big seraph, and this uh, big fellow, you know, all shimmery and shiny and dazzling. And that angel says to you, uh, if you go out and back of your house and dig under the peony bush right there by the air conditioner, there's a uh, there's a canister buried down there and you dig that thing up and pull out. It's a manuscript, old manuscript, and pull it out. And uh, here's a telescope and you look at this thing through the wrong end of the telescope, look through the big end, you know. And it's written in Sanskrit, but it'll be English when you read it. And you, and you go out there and read this thing. I mean, you think, why, I'm one of the uh, elect. 
I have been chosen. I am a prophet. And you go out there and dig this thing up, and you pull this thing out, and you get out your telescope, and you look at it. And it says uh, Jesus is okay, it's all right to belong to Him, that's the first step. But you have to go down to the Snake River twice a month and dip yourself down there in one of those mud flats to be saved. You know what you better do? You tear that thing up, you throw that telescope away, and you say, that's an angel straight out of hell. Because that's not what the gospel that the angels preach. And it's not the gospel that our Lord Jesus preached. And it's not the gospel that the apostles preached. And so I don't believe it. Um, that's why Paul gets so upset. You see. And uh, verse 9, he says, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be damned there. The if uh, suggests a fact because it was actually happening. People were trying to add to the gospel, and, and thus it will always be. So uh, let me leave you with two ideas. The source of the gospel is the apostles and no one else. Period. There are no other books written by apostles. Period. Uh, John is very clear in this little second epistle. You must read it sometime. He says, if somebody comes to your door and they have some gospel other than the gospel we apostles preach, don't believe them. Don't believe them. The source of our gospel is the apostles. We prefer the apostles to men or angels or bishops or philosophers or professors. As C.H. Dodd said, the messenger does not validate the message. The message validates the messenger. That's why Paul says, if somebody comes to you and they preach the gospel that we preach, receive them. If they don't, don't receive them. It's just that simple. Stick to the apostles. That's the source of the good news. The substance of the gospel. The source of the gospel is the apostles. The substance of the gospels is grace. It all depends upon God. It's the only way to grow. There isn't any other way to grow. As Peter puts it, we're going to talk more about this passage later. Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word he uses for knowledge is the word that's used for sexual intercourse in the New Testament. It's the most intimate of terms. It refers to the most loving relationship of all. He's saying grow in the knowledge of Christ. Get next to him. Like Zacchaeus, you can't sit at his table without it changing your manners. Something will begin to happen to you when you get next to him. Focus on him. Love him. Devote yourself to him. Grow in the intimate knowledge, you know, not head knowledge. He's not talking about how much you know. He's talking about the heart. It's given over to Jesus Christ in worship and devotion to him. Grow in knowledge and in grace. Cooperate with God and what he's doing in your life. He'll point out areas of your life that need to change. You can admit them. You can admit them before all. You don't need to hide them because we're all in this thing together. We're all struggling. We're all hurting. We're all failing. We all fall short. We don't need to play games with each other. 
Ray Stebbins used to talk about what he called a conspiracy of silence that dominates the church. And we won't talk about our failures and flaws, sins, mistakes. We need to just be out front. We're under construction. A lot of work yet to be done. But he's changing you. He's changing you. Little by little. Glory to glory. Attribute to attribute. He's changing you into the likeness of Christ. It's grace that does that. Let's pray. Father, we are surfeited with all the bad news in the world around us. It comes at us from every front. We really do not know what to do. The world is is in disarray, and then we look within and we see the same sort of distress, and we don't know what to do. The good news, the gospel, is that you've already done what needs to be done. You've delivered us out of this uh, present evil age. It's power, it's domination, it's influence. And uh, you're at work in us to accomplish everything that you've dreamed and envisioned and planned for us since the very beginning of of time. We want to cooperate with you. We, we want to keep walking with you and entrust ourselves to you, and we want you to keep working in us to conform us to your character. And we want that to start way down deep inside with a deep submission to your will and love for you, devotion for you. We ask you to make us everything that you've determined we shall be. Help us to trust you as you do that. These things we ask in Jesus' name.